is, is that the right text being translated? You know, what's being translated? And that's important because we have a King James Bible today that we hold in our hand. We call it the Word of God. And it ought to be called the Word of God because it is. But there are a number of other books that claim to be the Bible as well. And the question is, why or why not? If they do say different things, how is it possible that they're all exactly the same? As uh, Brother Hughes pointed out, uh, that's impossible. So we have to know or at least understand what it is we hold in our hand and why we hold it in our hand. And so I want to talk about this issue of the Bible down through time and kind of give you a brief kind of, I guess, just an a introduction as to where these lines came from and, and ultimately where they ended up. And so we'll take some time to do that uh, over this next couple of minutes. And then after we're done with that, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and Brother Hugh's going to talk about Westcott and Hort a little bit and so, some of the recensions and some different topics that deal with them. And I think you'll find that to be very interesting because Westcott and Hort, as we'll note even in this particular session, were major players when it comes to dealing with the other versions, okay? So you'll be glad you, you're, you're stuck around for that. Now again, your kids are downstairs and some of your children are in the, the junior King James or the mini King James conference. If they're three to five years old, they're down there right now getting their own little conference and they're having a good time doing that as well as the nursery. So we're, we're certainly uh, thankful for the ladies and those involved in our nursery that give us the opportunity to have this, as well as those that are teaching those classes as well. Boy, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm sure that your kids are going to have a good time down there, so I'm glad you brought them along with you. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and consider this issue. Father, we come to you. Thank you again for all that you mean to us and all that you do. Bless this time, Lord, and may you be glorified. Father, help me to express these situations, these truths, Father, in a very clear manner. And again, Lord, uh, as we consider the history of the Bible, as we consider how it came through the ages and ultimately ended up where it is today, Lord, may our hearts be encouraged as we realize and recognize that we hold in our hand the Word of God. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, God transmitted His Word to man. And of course, that's nothing that probably you haven't heard and you've been preached to over and over and over again. But what was in heaven was handed down to earth. And between 40 and 90 A.D., we have the New Testament being put together. We have men of God, Paul, and of course Peter, and, and some of the others that wrote the Gospels that God used to pen the Scriptures. They're placing those in place, and they're taking care of those. But the Bible says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. May I say that the word of God was in heaven before it was ever on earth. And I think it's important to realize that this is God's word, and he's always had it there, and it's always been there for us. And so now he's going to make it available to us. And so as a result of that, what was in heaven is now being handed down to earth. And the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so we know that the word of God was handed down. It was given down to you and I. So there is the word of God, and that word of God is somewhere then on earth. God gave it to us from heaven, and now it's on earth somewhere. We need to find the word of God. If you don't have it, you better find it. But it is here. First of all, when we start talking about the Word of God, we're going to see that there are two basic lines of manuscripts. Now, it's not really that uncommon. If you'll read any books on the King James Bible, you're going to run into these two lines of manuscripts. It's not something that's hidden. It's not really some dark secret. It is pretty plain. It's pretty simple. First of all, there's those in Antioch of Syria. You're going to find there's a line of manuscripts that originates over there in Antioch or in Asia Minor, that area, European area. And what we're going to find about that particular, uh, particular uh, line of manuscripts, is, and it makes perfect sense, is that you had the Apostle Paul over there. 
So the Apostle Paul ends up over there in Antioch, and it's, it's very important to understand that they were first called Christians in Antioch, over there in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 6. That's pretty good. That's an important piece of information, by the way. And then not only that, but the first mention of Bible teachers in the New Testament, you're going to find that's over in the book of Acts, chapter 13 again. Guess where that's at? Antioch. You're also going to see the first missionary trip in the New Testament goes forth from Antioch of Syria. Again, once again, Antioch. So when you see Antioch in the Bible, it's a positive thing. It's a good thing. And you're going to find that the, 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 the one line of manuscripts literally originates and forms there in Antioch of Syria and ultimately flows down to us even today. The Word of God began to spread, of course. We know that there were writers and they began to put the Word of God together and, and uh, they had the different books. And I mean to tell you, the Word of God began to be canonized after that first 95 years and ultimately there's a Bible now, there's a book that's put together. And we have that word starting to spread. And it's all throughout Asia. And it's all throughout Europe. And, and there's copies being made over and over and over. You've got to understand that the things that they were making the copies on, the, 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 that, those vellum documents and all those different uh, scrolls, they, they weren't really that... Um, they, they, they weren't very durable, if you, you could say it that way. And so there were multiple copies being handwritten. Remember, they didn't have the printing press. They didn't have computers. They simply had to literally handwrite all of these copies. And so these copies are being handwritten over and over and over and over and over again. By the time 500 AD shows up, uh, comes along, there's over 500 Bibles in different languages. The scriptures are in 500 different languages. Now listen, that's amazing. That's really an amazing thing. Because what's going to happen is what we're going to see now. That's going to change very rapidly. It's going to be a real problem here coming up very shortly. Because this side of the, the line of manuscripts is in Antioch of Syria. And it's just spreading throughout Europe. It's beginning with Paul right on through. We see that even up to about 500 AD. However, there's another line of manuscripts. This line of manuscripts is called the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. This particular line of manuscripts basically begins with a eunuch. You remember uh, over there in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, is saved. Obviously, he goes on his way. He's, he's, he's jubilant. He's happy as he's saved. And he takes, his, he takes those scriptures that he had and he runs them right on down into Africa. They're down in, into that area. Not only that, but historically speaking, we're told that Barnabas and Mark, when they made that split from Paul, made their way down into Africa as well. But before we know it, down there in Alexandria, Egypt, the scriptures find their way. Now, it's interesting about Alexandria, Egypt. It's quite different than Antioch of Syria. First of all, Paul made three missionary journeys. He visited scores of cities, and you know what he never did? He never went to Antioch. Not only that, but no original New Testament letters were ever written to anybody in Egypt. Not only that, but there are two main, quote, oldest and best manuscripts, and that would be Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Excuse me, I always get that mixed up. It originated in or near Alexandria, Egypt. Now, that right now you're going, well, what's that supposed to mean? We'll get to that in a little bit. But let me tell you something. If you see those Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, those two right there are the virtual foundation virtually for every modern version that there is. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more because Westcott and Hort played an instrumental part in that as well. And, and they kind of took that against, and, and they kind of mixed it up a little bit and shook it up a little bit and created a text that ultimately does indeed 
uh, support all these other versions. But nonetheless, we have Alexander, Egypt. So what we find then is we've got this line over in, in Syria, Antioch. We have this line now over in Alexandria, Egypt. And, and so th- there are scriptures now being copied. There are scriptures that are being uh, uh, you know, checked and looked at. In Alexandria, Egypt, there's a mess. I mean, it is a total mess. See, there's a school in Alexandria. And there's a number of leaders in Alexandria there that, that are going to ultimately take the word of God and they're going to look it over and they're going to begin to, I guess, uh, be very critical about that text. You have a man by the name of Philo. And, you know, that's interesting because actually though our word uh, philosophy comes from this particular man. I mean, he was a pretty wise and pretty very smart, intelligent person. You have, uh, Paten- uh, this one's a tough one. I've been working on it. Patanus. And then you have Clement of Alexandria. Now, these guys here, uh, Clement, he lived about 150 to 215 A.D. And all of these guys, they were literally the founding fathers of the university. The University of Alexandria, if you will, the School of Alexandria. But the one who really got things rolling was a man by the name of Origen. Origen was, lived between 184 and 254. And um, he was revered by the, revered by the church as a, a tremendous leader. As a matter of fact, if you read about him to this day, people will say, wow, you talk about a man. I mean, now, and listen, don't misunderstand what I'm going to say here. Honestly, if you look at Eusebius and you look at some of these men like Origen and others, uh, you would, um, some of the, they suffered for their faith, by the way. Uh, Eusebius was thrown in jail, by the way. Because of a profession of faith. I mean, I'm, so I'm not saying that he, he didn't have some things, uh, maybe in one sense, that it would re, you know, kind of represent Christianity. However, you've got to also understand the man and what he believed and where he stood. But the modern day church even looks at him today and says, man, he's like a hero of the faith. When in reality, he was nothing more than a heretic. You say, well, why would you say that? Why would you be so mean? Why would you, you know, be so critical of somebody that's already dead and gone? Well, first of all, Origen believed some things. He believed that water baptism was necessary for salvation. I don't know about you, but that's not scriptural. That is not Bible. Not only that, he did not believe the Old Testament was true. Now, I don't know, when you read your Bible, do you believe the Old Testament's true? Of course you do. But not this man. He didn't believe that. He did not believe the account of the beginnings in Genesis was literal. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a battle raging today when it comes to creation and evolution. And I'm going to tell you something. If you have not got got this settled in your mind that God created everything in six literal days, my friend, you don't know what the Bible teaches. And so this man had a problem with that as well. Not only that, but he did not believe in in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, Jesus raised from the dead. Up from the grave he arose. Right? Isn't that what we sing? Why? Because we believe it. It's in the Word of God. He didn't really believe the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. The main theme of teaching in his school was that Jesus Christ was not God. Now listen, don't, that, that is not that uncommon today. That's the kind of, kind of uh, ideas and that's the kind of ideology that Origen believed. That's what he, what he embraced. So therefore, as a result of his beliefs... It affected how he viewed scripture. And it, and it caused him to start to, in a sense, corrupt the scriptures. The very scriptures that were there had already been tainted, had already been being corrected. Last time I checked, you know, we ought to be copying, not correcting scriptures. 
But they were correcting the scriptures already in, in, in Alexandria, Egypt. And now here they are now, Origen, this man who's way off base, spiritually speaking, way off base, scripturally speaking. Now here he is with his philosophies and his particular work theology, and he is inserting that theology and inserting those philosophies into the very text of the Bible. It would be a few years later now that a man by the name of Eusebius shows up. We had Origen, and now we got Eusebius as well. And I think I might have mixed them up a little bit. I was running on about Eusebius because he's been on my mind lately. But that Origen was a mess. And then Eusebius follows him some years later. But here's the interesting thing about Eusebius too. Eusebius had a mentor who literally worshipped the ground that Origen walked on. I mean, he just thought Origen was, I mean, just the cat's meow. You ever hear that one? Cat's meow, that's been a while ago, huh? He, he, he honestly thought that. Now listen, this, so Eusebius, he continued in that vein of scriptural correction, just like Origen had corrected, and Origen was just, I mean, the kingpin of it all. But boy, I'll tell you what, Eusebius' mentor, he just loved Origen, and boy, he fell right into suit, this Eusebius did, and as a result, he continued correcting the Bible continued to change the words, continued to do things based on maybe now where his philosophies were, what his thinking was. Interestingly enough, Eusebius gets a a request from a fellow by the name of Constantine. Now, Constantine, this is about 300 AD now. Constantine, he he is the emperor of Rome. He's an emperor of Rome. Constantine, and, and we're going to talk about Constantine. Let's go ahead and take a look at him real quick. But Constantine was an interesting guy in the sense that he's out fighting a battle, right? And Constantine, when he's out fighting his battle, he sees something that's very interesting. He sees a cross in the sky. And he hears a voice or he hears the, someone say, in this sign, conquer. Man, I mean to tell you, at that point, Constantine, he gets fired up and he gets excited. He has heard from heaven And boy, I'll tell you what, uh, many have said that it wasn't until the end of his life that he ever professed Jesus Christ as Savior. But but we know that all of a sudden he embraced Christianity. Now, I mean, when I say embrace Christianity, I'm not talking about the kind of Christianity that you and I claim to know Christ as. I'm saying he, he just kind of embraced it. The truth was is that it really was very politically helpful to him to do so. And this Constantine, as we noted earlier, had had ultimately, after this had taken place, and as he began to move forward in his, his uh, um, I guess his, uh, you know, his, um, not just, it wasn't really faith, but in, in his pursuit of Christianity, he decided to go ahead and, 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 you know, make Christianity legal. Which is a good thing, right? Because there was all this persecution taking place. Constantine makes Christianity legal. And in so doing, he needs a bunch of Bibles now. I mean, let's face it, it's going to be the, 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 the religion of the empire. So he goes ahead and gets a hold of Eusebius down there, calls his buddy and says, man, listen, I need some scriptures. And Eusebius sends up 50, 50 scriptures, 50 copies of the scriptures. But where is Eusebius? He's down in Alexandria, Egypt. He's down there where the scriptures have been corrupted. He's down there where they've been changing the word of God, not simply copying the word of God. And so what goes to Rome? Corrupted version 
an Alexandrian virgin, virgin, uh, version. And so we have Constantine who legalizes Christianity and now he has these copies of a corrupted text. It'd be about a hundred more years later that a man by the name of Augustine shows up. Now Constantine, he kind of began to lay the framework for the Catholic Church. Because see, what Constantine did was he kind of connected the church and the state together. It was Constantine and religion. And so he kind of brought the two together. And as he did that, he laid the framework for what later Augustine would lay the foundation. Because Augustine would take that corrupted text that was sent up by Eusebius some years before, and he would literally build the doctrine of the Catholic Church on those manuscripts. And so now we have the Catholic Church rooted and grounded in a corrupted Alexandrian text. It's around 400 A.D. In 400 A.D., of course, the, the, as we move forward in that, those years, at one thing that's very confusing as you read history, I don't know if this confuses you, but it did me, when they talk about the 5th century, the 6th century, the 7th century, and then you'll go, it's the 5th century, and they'll say 465 A.D., and you'll go, I thought you said it was the 5th century. <laughs> you, you ever get mixed up on all that? See, what they're saying is it's kind of like when it comes to my birthday, you know, when I, when I, I turned, uh, you know, 40 a few years ago, I, I still remember turning 40 and they'd say, how old are you? I'd say, I'm 40. But in, in the way they count history, they would say he's in his 41st year, 41st century. I don't, I don't like that, okay? But, but, but you know what I'm saying? Because you're already counting ahead. You're already in the next century once you cross that great divide. So when you hit the year 400, you, you, 399, you're still in the 4th century. Because you, I, whatever. You, you're getting it though, right? You got it? Okay, I don't I spend any more time on it. I'm going to start getting more confused. So anyway, we, we see here now, it's the, it's the year 400, and, and so we're, we're going into that, 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 that time period where the Catholic Church is getting its feet underneath it. It's really growing in power and stature. And there comes a point where ultimately the Catholic Church has, you know, commissions a fellow by the name of Jerome uh, to, to, write a, to, to, to translate the Greek into Latin. But he's translating a corrupt text, an Alexandrian text. And so he does that, and the Catholic Church has their Jerome Latin Vulgate now. And they say, no one's allowed to have the scriptures unless it's in Latin. Well, over there in Europe, remember, I mean, those, those people over there have been copying scriptures and putting them into their languages and trying to get as much as they could in the sense of the word of God. But now, all of a sudden, they're no longer allowed to even have a copy of anything but a Latin copy. And it had to be the Latin of the Catholic Church. And so as a result of that, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Amen. He said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
The truth is, is that all of a sudden, as a result of this edict to, to remove Bibles, to say no longer allowed or permitted to have the Word of God unless it's in Latin, and it has to be the Latin out of the Alexandria, Egypt, the fact is we're going to kill anybody who has any other kind of Scripture in their possession. As a result of that, the Word of God was suppressed, suppressed, and as a result, the Dark Ages came. Listen, you can say anything you want. You can say that it's all about a lack of education. You can talk about all kinds of things that transpired and took place and say that's why we had the Dark Ages. But my friend, I believe that nothing more important happened than the fact that we lost the light of the world. And the Word of God was hidden. And boy, I'll tell you what, when you go ahead and take the scriptures out of people's hands, and by the way, this was just all a ploy by the Catholic Church as well, mind you. And again, I'm not trying to knock Catholics. Don't misunderstand me. If you're Catholic today, you need Jesus like I do. We need him the same way. You get there the same way, so do I. So if we don't get to him according to the word of God, we're going to miss it. But the fact was, is historically speaking, when we look at Catholicism, they said, listen, everybody's going to be trained and taught in Latin. What was once a Greek language in the world, now we're going to change it over to Latin in the sense that everybody that's religious learns Latin, everybody that's educated learns Latin, and you know what they did? They just went ahead and said to everybody else, you're going to be common, because unless you learn Latin, unless you can go to the universities, unless you can go to our schools, you can be a big, you're a big zero. That's exactly how it went down. You talk about dark ages, it all started when they tried to take, when they decided to move the Bible and take it out of the hands of the common people. And there was the dark ages. From 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., there was darkness because the Word of God was no longer present as a whole in the, in the world. He had stripped it, taken it out, did not permit it. Oh, it was still hidden, though. It was still kind of finding its way, weaving its way through history in spite of those edicts. You can't get rid of God's Word. Why? Because He's the one that promised to what? Preserve His Word. So at the end of 1,500 years, ultimately after Christ's death, we have what's called the Reformation. Boy, I'll tell you what, you had a man by the name of Wycliffe comes around in 1380 and he starts to set the stage for a man by the name of none other than Martin Luther. Martin Luther, he nails his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel and he goes ahead and translates his New Testament, New Testament Bible. You know, it's interesting when you think about old, old Martin Luther who was raised a Catholic priest and you consider what he, what, what he did. I mean, first of all, remember, the whole point was the thing that the Catholic Church hated about Martin Luther more than anything, he, he wanted to get the language. He wanted to get the Bible in the language of, of, of common people. He wanted it in the German language, his own native tongue. And so he did. He went ahead and made a translation of the New Testament to German. Do you know what this Catholic priest used to translate his New Testament? Oh, no, no, he didn't use the Alexandrian text that he had grown up learning that had been used by his masters in the seminaries. He used that text that we still have preserved in the King James Bible today. It's funny, he could have used that if it was the best text. He could have decided to translate his New Testament as a result of that, but he didn't. He used the received text to do so. And so as a result, he kicked the door open and the dark ages were over. And the word of God started being produced in the languages of common man again. 
and the Word of God became more available. And boy, I mean, at that point, some things started happening. The Word of God began to increase, and over the next 80 years, a number of translations from the Antioch text would be published. A number of them. They'd start to dig into those texts. They'd started compiling those copies of text through all the ages that had been hidden and the people have kind of kept secret because for fear of death and they went ahead and they started getting all those copies now again they've been they had those copies they were willing to die for those copies i mean those albigensians those waldensians and and even those anabaptists that you read about in history they died because they held on to that word of god they were not going to give in and so now all of a sudden, those, those people, they're coming together and we're seeing some scriptures starting to be published and started to be uh, uh, turned out now. And more copies became more uniform. And then all of a sudden, we come to 1604. So over 80 years, we have a number of, of these Bibles that are being produced, many of them in pieces and parts. Coverdale was the first complete Bible completed in, in that portion of history. But now we have the King James Bible in 1604. And again, King James I, he authorized that new translation of the Bible into English. And it was started, and seven years later, in 1611, it was completed. Now listen, there's a lot of debate, and there's a lot of, quite, not even debate, there's a lot of cynicism around the idea that, well, King James wasn't a very godly man. King James wasn't very, uh, you know, uh, separated. King James wasn't really all the kind of Christian that we call Christian today and all that. I get it. And God's used the world to do a lot of things many times in his favor. And I'm just saying, he, he commissioned it, but I'm going to tell you something. The world needed an English Bible. And you know what we got today? We got an English Bible that's lasted for 400 years right now. And here we hold it in our hands. And it's in the King James Bible, and it is from the Antioch line of manuscripts. It's not from the Alexandrian ones. See, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus... Those are the, the basic foundation of, of, of you would, the Catholic Bible, if you will. Now, again, Sinaiticus was found later on through the years. And again, we'll see here that the manuscript Vaticanus was found in 1481, but it was in the Vatican Library. So it's been around a long time. They believe, many believe that it was one of those 50 copies that was sent from Eusebius up to Constantine. And then there's Sinaiticus. It was found in St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai in 1844. It's interesting, the man that found that was an atheist, and the man that found it also, uh, he, he found it in a trash can. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's no joke. No, they, they were utilizing it to start a fire. And the gentleman who was using it to start the fire said, oh, we just burned a bunch of those up the other day. And so he found those, those, those manuscripts that obviously weren't being used too much. And they're called Sinaiticus. It would be 15 years later that they found another round of them. And they added to them. And again, they were, they, they were literally uh, in line with that Alexandrian text again. Then you have a couple of fellows by the name of Westcott and Horton. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But they dig up those old Alexandrian texts again. 
You have that Sinaiticus, you got Vaticanus, and now you've got Westcott and Hort, that now they're going to go ahead and they're going to update the King James. They're going to fix the King James Bible. They're actually going to do another translation of the King James, supposedly, from the, from the, the, the proper text, mind you, the Antioch text. The only problem is they didn't do what they were supposed to do. You'll learn more about that, I'm sure. But nonetheless, they end up resurrecting this Alexandrian text again, basically, and they begin to insert a number of variant readings, and they create basically a new text that really had not existed, in a sense, to that point. And every, basically every modern version comes from that text now. And, and someone will say, well, it's not really. It's called the critical text because they've updated it. But in a sense, it's still a foundational text, the foundational text that Westcott and Hort founded. I know they've updated it. I know they've changed it. And they'll try to say everybody that's against these new versions will say Westcott and Hort, it's their, their text. But really, it's the critical text. I, I get it. But it's still an Alexandrian text. That's the bottom line. See, there's only really two texts in the world. There's either the one from Antioch, Syria, or there's the one from Alexandria, Egypt. That's the only two there are. And you can go ahead and you can doctor it up and you can go ahead and put, put all the icing on it you want, but when you sink your teeth into it, it's either corrupt or it's preserved. The NIVs and the NSVs, the ESVs, the RSVs, and even the New King James Bible Version has been influenced by those Alexandrian texts. And again, I don't have time to get into all of it, but I know the New King James Bible is based on the the Antioch or Syria, the received text. However, they've turned around and taken the Alexandrian uh, uh, variant readings and plugged them in. And probably tomorrow when I do my next session and we talk about the corruption of the Bible specifically, we'll look at some of the times where they match up with those other versions. How in the world could a a, a completely different text read the same way? I'll tell you why. Because they actually inserted the corrupt text into it. And so here's where it all ends up. When it's all said and done, there's two lines of manuscripts. So I go to the bookstore and I say, man, I want to know what Bible I should buy. Because it's so confusing, isn't it? I mean, okay, I mean, you go there and and honestly, they're they're trained salesmen, saleswomen, salespersons, whatever is politically correct. And you go there and they've been told exactly which versions that they need to get off the shelves. You know how it is, same way with a car salesman. Same way it is at some other business. They, they know what they want to get rid of. They know what's been sitting around. We've got to get rid of this. We've got to move the product. And you go in there and they say, man, listen, and, and I've, I've done this. I've just gone to bookstores, sometimes Christian bookstores, and just kind of hung around just to listen to it. I always find it very amusing. It's very fun. But I'm, I'm always amazed. They'll sit there and say, well, uh, I'm looking for a Bible. Oh, we have a number of different Bibles. And they'll say, well, I, I'm looking for one that, that I can, I, I mean, I'm just struggling with understanding the Bible. Well, actually, you're in luck. We've got a number of them that are, actually, I have a couple of my own favorites. I, over here, let me take you over here. Look at this. This one right here, I'm telling you right now, this is a great, great Bible. It's so easy to understand. And they, they start to sell the Bible. 
And the person says, I don't know. There's just so many different ones. I know there are. Let me show you another one. How's this one? This one has some pictures, too. I'm just saying that they sell the Bible. They don't care which Bible it is because it doesn't matter what it says. All that matters is it's got the name Bible on it. And somebody says, boy, it's just so confusing. I don't know which Bible to get. Let me tell you something. It's not hard. It's not difficult because there's only two lines of manuscripts. The fact is, is this. If you want to buy a Bible that you can trust and depend on, you need to get one that's out of the text of the, the Antioch Syrian text. You need to get the one that Paul, the Apostle Paul helped to take on through Europe and others that followed him took throughout Europe. And, and we understand that ultimately the Roman Bible, I get it, got through Europe as well. But it wasn't from Alexandrian to there. It was from the Roman church to there. But what we have here is we've got two lines. Antioch and you've got Alexandrian. And there they are on the scale. And let me tell you something. If you weigh the scale out and it's, it's real, that's not how the scale's supposed to be. Turn that around, brother. Just get, Could you get in there and like turn the slide? I don't, I don't know why it ended up wrong. But those, see those Bibles on the left? They're supposed to be weighing it down. Now that's, I don't get how that just happened. But anyway, uh, that's supposed to be weighing it down. And the King James Bible's going up. You know what I'm saying? Because you got all these other versions. That's really messed up right there. That messed up my whole program. <laughs> if you only knew how I am, you'd know how much that's messing me up right now. Yeah, now we're talking. Wait, that's still wrong. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> now that looks like the text that's in those other versions. There it is. All right, either way, it's on top. I like it. Okay. But you saw... You've seen how that weighs out? All those versions are there. Now watch it, okay, because I have to de- now I have to demonstrate. Here's my King James Bible. Let me tell you something. When it's all said and done, there's only one Bible today on the market that's from that text that's actually able to get into your hands today. Here it is, the King James. Now watch this. Uh, I know they'll tell you there's others. I, I get it, but they're not worth getting into because they're still sprinkled with that Alexandrian mess because there's all this textual critics out there. But anyway, so here it is. It goes like this. All those other versions. Boom. Let me tell you something. They're all from the same corrupt Alexandrian text. Every last one. I need a Bible, preacher. It's up to you. It's a choice between this one or any of the other ones you want because they're all the same. It's up to you. Go ahead. It's not, it's not a hard choice. It's between one of two now. It's not between one of 200 or 300. It's either this one from Antioch, the line of Antioch. Because remember, it's not the translation that's the problem. It's the text. And the text of the King James is preserved by God. It's gone down through the centuries. It was not corrupted by men and women who chose to to change it. They sought with all their heart to try to preserve it and keep it the way God intended it to be. Don't let anybody kid you. Attitude is a big factor here. How you viewed the word of God matters. And I'm going to tell you, in Alexander Egypt, they didn't have a very high view of God and his word. They got a high view of it over here. So when you go to, check, to, to buy the Bible, you don't have to ask yourself, which of the 300 or which of the 200 do I want to choose? No. You just have to say, well, I'm either going to get one, the King James Bible, or I'll get one of those other ones. Because, well, they're all Alexandrian texts. It's, they're all the same. They're all from the same. I know they say different things, but in a sense, they're all from the same text. The Alexandrian text. 
And that's what we find. And that's what we see. And so as a result of that, I just want to encourage you to remember that the Word of God is His Word. And aren't we glad that He's preserved His Word for us? And you know, there's a lot of questions that I still have. I'm sure you still have some too. And I think in heaven one day I'll ask the Lord a bunch of stuff. And I'm going to try to figure it all out. Right now I got this little pea brain. I'm just human. I'm finite. But what I do know is that God's true to his word. And if he said he'd preserve it, he will. And if I'm going to be judged by it, then I better make sure I got something that's judge worthy. And so I got a book today called the King James Bible that I believe is the word of God. You go and ask anybody that uses one of these Alexandrian texts if they've got the word of God and if it is the word of God. You know what they'll tell you? Yeah, for the most part. It's pretty much, yeah. Does your Bible have error in it? They'll say, you know what they'll say? Well, every Bible does. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time that we have now, Lord, just to, uh, again, gather. And, Lord, we thank you for just your love and grace in our lives. And we can't thank you enough for just giving us uh, your grace and your